Look at these three words written larger than the rest, with a special pride never written before or since. Tall words proudly saying, We the people. Welcome to the Lex Rex Institute podcast. I'm your host, David Trucial, the lead writer for the Lex Rex Institute. How does it feel to no longer be one of we the people, David? I'm still a citizen. Say your lines. <laughs> but you're subject to the jurisdiction of a foreign sovereign. We'll get to that later. Just say your lines. All right. Just, we've got to be careful this week because David, as we know, no longer has rights being stuck in the United Kingdom. So we'll be careful not to say anything too controversial this episode. But uh, anyway, what, what was, where was I? Oh, that's right. I'm your co-host, Alexander Haberbush, still in America. President of the Lex Rex Institute and also a constitutional attorney, although I won't be speaking in that capacity today, or as David's mentioned in the past, ever on this podcast. Yeah, I, I do want to point out, when you lost your place, you were at the very beginning of, of your part. Anyway, yes, that's why I was able to find it again so quickly. Quickly is one word for it. Um, probably not the one I would choose. Before we begin, please note that nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice and all the opinions expressed are the opinions of the individuals expressing them, not necessarily the opinions of the Lex Rex Institute. The Lex Rex Institute is a nonprofit constitutional advocacy organization. If you'd like to learn a bit more about our organization's activities or make a donation, please visit our website, lexrex.org. That's L-E-X-R-E-X.org. And as a reminder, this podcast is a legal issues podcast, not a political issues podcast, notwithstanding what my co-host just said about our special allies across the pond. We try to keep our well, comments. Well, that's a legal matter. <laughs> we try to keep our commentary. That's not a political. That's that, that's not political at all. Eh, the, you are subject to a foreign side. Yeah, but the notion that they don't have rights is a fairly loaded. We did an episode on that. Day. Anyway, that's our Fourth of July episode. We try to keep our commentary strictly to legal issues, and now that more issues are considered political than ever before, it's important to bear that distinction in mind and even to emphasize it. Even things like whether the English have rights is apparently political. <laughs> Not just the English. There's more. There's more than the English over here. But anyway, <laughs> that's true. The British. Yeah. So, in case you haven't figured it out yet, David is now in Scotland. He'll be studying at the University of Edinburgh and l learning all about... Well, what, what's the precise name of your degree, David? Uh, curr well, currently, I am doing... You, met, you said last week that it was a doctoral degree. It's not yet. I'm hoping to stay on and do that. But at the moment, I'm in a master's degree in theology and history. I thought you already had I one. I do have a, a master's degree, but that was a while ago, and I'm trying to get back into the academic game. So. Wasn't it also in theology and history? No. Uh, I'm going to cut a lot of this. This is very boring for the people. <laughs> My previous degree was technically Master of Arts in Religion with a focus on theology. Oh, that sounds very similar to me. similar. Right? This one is more historically oriented. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that makes sense. Studying in historic Edinburgh... Area looks gorgeous. It, it is a very it's, pretty city. I will I will give it that. I have not seen yeah. everything over here, but I have been walking all around the city, and it's it's pretty beautiful. I have to say. So David's now nine hours ahead of me. We got to really make time to record this. So you guys should be thankful for this <laughs> podcast. I, you know, I hear they call Edinburgh the Athens of the North. Is there any truth to that? Um, I haven't heard anyone say that, but uh, then again, I've basically... Well, Wikipedia says okay. it, so I know it's true. <laughs> then again, I've basically never heard anyone use one of the supposed nicknames of a city when they're actually there. Like, no one in New York is going to say it's the Big Apple. No one in Chicago is going to talk about the Windy That's City, etc. So, No one in Long Beach is going to say it's the best city on Earth? Well, you say that constantly, um, so that's wrong. Oh, 
But people outside Long Beach, I guess, don't really say No, that. people outside Long Beach rarely say that Long Beach is the best city in the world. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a well-kept secret. <laughs> don't come here, please. We have enough people and prices are high enough. All right. <laughs> Anyway. All right. So we got a few interesting topics planned for you guys today. One of them, very apropos, given David's current geographical orientation, actually the same subject as our Ask an Attorney segment that came out last Friday, is going to be the United Kingdom and its laws of succession. Yep. So Charles is king. Char- Charles is the king. The queen is yeah. dead. Long live the and, king. And uh, there's there's going to be a uh, bank holiday on Monday here in the UK with everything, including the university, shut down. And, you know, do you think he'll abolish parliament like the first Charles? I don't did? expect him to, although we'll, we'll have to wait and see what, what sort of king he is like. I'm not sure they would let him get away with that again, much like they didn't let the previous Charles get away with it ultimately. But yeah, <laughs> no, they, really <laughs> um, it is interesting. Oh, 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 just a second. Just a second. Yeah. I had a feeling you were going to do that. Um, they did not guillotine Charles. No. <laughs> but, he, but he did end his reign 10 inches shorter than he began. Yes, that, that is true. You know, a lot of the pageantry around the Queen's funeral and the succession has been taking place here in Edinburgh. It's actually kind of inconvenienced me personally on a few occasions, which, uh, you know. But one of the palaces is there, Yeah, right? uh, Holyrood or Holyrood. I'm not actually sure which is the correct pronunciation. Hollywood, really. Um, not quite Hollywood, but there's ah. a yeah, there's a segment of the city called the Royal Mile, which is sort of right in the center. Happens to be right where the Divinity School building is, and so all of the traffic changes and the the street shutdowns have actually really inconvenienced me quite a lot. So you know, due respect to Elizabeth II, but I really wish they had picked a different location to do all this personally. Do you think that your education will change substantially given that? Yeah. There's a new head of the church. You know, the Divinity School at Edinburgh is not affiliated any longer with the Church of Scotland in an official capacity. So, really, yeah, um, no, they, they do provide training for uh, Church of Scotland ministers, but it's not officially attached. So probably not. Actually, one of the other students who I've met recently at the at the Divinity School went to pay his respects to... Whom you've met? Oh, thank you. Uh, whom I met <laughs> went to pay his respects to uh, Elizabeth II and waited in line for five hours to do so. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, only to find out... She was a well-liked monarch. She was. She was a very well-liked monarch. Only to find out, though, apparently at the end, people who got there early were only in line for 15 minutes. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Boy, that's... Quite Nation a time of shopkeepers indeed, uh, people who get there early. So Yeah. Anyway, but we were talking about succession, and actually, I found out... The hit HBO TV show. No, not, not that, although I do like that show. Good show. Its language is not great, but it's, <laughs> it's a well-scripted show, apart from all of the swearing. Yeah. Anyway, I think we may have mentioned, and you probably mentioned this in the video, which I have not yet seen, but you, you probably brought up the act of settlement. I did, yes. I found out recently when I was prepping for this episode that actually the succession law was modified quite recently, 2013. Yeah, I foolishly, so in filming that, I foolishly relied on my Blackstone for how it would work because I'm a good American. <laughs> when I look at English law, I look back to what it was like in the 1750s yeah. because I don't really care about the changes since then. We They're not really relevant for American purposes. So, yeah, I found that I found out about that afterward as well. Yeah. We'll, we'll get into that in a second, though. So before we do that, we should probably just recap what the Act of Settlement is and what it did. 
So it's part of the Glorious Revolution. I guess it's a little bit after the rest of the Glorious Revolution, since that was 1780, I'm sorry, 1689. Yep. 88? I think 89. 89 sounds right to me. Yeah, so James II, not a real popular guy, probably even less popular than Charles I, but it's a little bit embarrassing to cut off more than one monarch's head. So (laughs) rather than going that route, the British people decided that they were going to basically declare that that his reign was null and void, and they were going to go to the next legitimate heir, which happened to be Mary, who was married at the time to William of Orange. Yeah. So they basically cooperate with them to have a peaceful coup. I mean, it's coup is kind of the pejorative way of putting it. I don't think yeah. that's entirely accurate. But a peaceful transfer of power from James to William and Mary. And they codify this with several documents which become part of the British Constitution. Uh, One of those is the English Bill of Rights. That's a very significant document. We talk about it a lot on this podcast. But a few years later, when it looks like we're going to have to prepare for the next monarch, so, so then a few years later, after Mary had died, who, remember, was the one whose claim was actually valid for this, uh, this transfer of power. And only William was still alive, but I, I guess he, it's pretty late in his life, about a year before his death. Parliament yeah. figures, we've got to figure out this succession thing. Who's going to be next? So they look back to, I think, the electress Sophia, right? Because I think she's the, the one from whose claim Mary's claim was derived, if I'm not mistaken. And they settle her as sort of, you know, we determine legitimacy from her because we can trace William the Conqueror's line down through her. We know that her claim is good. That's the claim that Mary's claim was based upon. So future claims are going to be derivative of her claim. Remember, if if you watched our video from last Friday, when figuring out who a successor is going to be, you don't just look back one generation and say like, oh, well, it's the king's brother or whatever. You go back to the original sovereign and then you trace down the line of, you know, who would, who would inherit at each possible stage, and then you find out who has the second best claim yeah. after the sovereign who just died. That, that's, that's when sovereigns have no issue, when they don't have any kids. Um, that's how you figure it out. So what the Epcot Settlement does is it sets the, I don't know, the, the determination of that as stemming from Electra's Sophia, as well as introducing a number of other probably much more interesting, much less difficult to explain <laughs> uh, things that the presumptive heir of Britain must have. And David, what are those things? Well, number one most famous is that they must be personally a Protestant. Must be a Protestant. No more Roman Catholic monarchs, because James II was a Roman Catholic, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah they don't want that again. Yeah. Now, why don't they want a Catholic monarch? In large part... They're just racist? Or... <laughs> uh, I don't think Catholics are race, but, you know... Oh, bigoted you could say or you know prejudiced against catholics whatever it is is that it that's all it is just just a bunch of bigots nation no i don't i I don't think that's quite fair one thing is that the monarch of england is necessarily also the head of the church of england and the church of scotland yeah which is a protestant church yeah it doesn't make a lot of sense to have a roman catholic who owes fealty to the pope being head of the church of england yes that's a good non-bigoted reason I do think that there is an element of them just sort of being tired of the Stuarts. Um, yeah, I think that's a big part of it. And, uh, you know, the Stuarts love to at least flirt with Catholicism, if not actually outright become Catholics. Literally so. in one case, because Charles the, <laughs> the first, sorry, Charles the first had a Roman Catholic wife. So And that's an- another flirted. element that disqualifies you is if you marry a Catholic. Yeah. 
And beyond that, I think the only other provision was that it would just, you know, codify that basically the, you know, the nearest Protestant claimant with a preference for the males would inherit. I, I don't remember if there were other specific details of the act of settlement. Yeah. But so it's, you know, Britain has male preference primogeniture, but it does. So if there are no sons, if a king has no sons, the crown pretty much always in Great Britain would fall to one of his daughters before you would go and do that look back to William yeah, the Conqueror exactly. and figure out who the next closest heir was. That's not true in every nation. Oh, uh, and... Um, pretty much every nation has some circumstances where women can inherit the throne, but those circumstances, I would say, are among the more... or were, because they've changed now, but were already among the more liberal yeah. in Great Britain. A little, certainly more liberal than in, uh, than in Game of Thrones, I would say. <laughs> yeah. One other thing I just did remember was that it also imposed a requirement for people in the sort of near line of succession, or actually not even near line of succession, quite broad line of succession, required the permission of the monarch to marry. That's another element of the... Yeah, and that's still, that's still on the books, isn't it? Well, and here's where we, we can start talking about the... So that, that was Act. the whole thing with, you know, the now King Charles with Camilla. Yes. Because I guess that he, he always liked Camilla, but she was viewed as unsuitable for a prince, so... Yeah, well, well, and, you know... I'm not going to repeat all the history on that. That kind of gets into soap opera. So. Issues of royal marriage, you know, Edward the... Who was he? The seventh last century? I think he was the seventh. Oh, yeah. I think that's the seventh. Yeah, I think it was Edward the seventh. He, you the, know... The one that wanted to marry the American divorcee? Yes, and that caused a whole yeah. mess. He ended up abdicating to George the sixth, whose daughter, Elizabeth, became Elizabeth the second. But anyway, a lot actually changed in 2013 with a new act that they passed which because remember this is an important point britain is a parliamentary tyranny <laughs> yeah that's that's literally true you know that's that's legally the case in great britain parliament can do whatever the heck they want parliament can supersede the english constitution a judge cannot hold parliament to the english constitution they're a parliamentary tyranny so because the king acts basically at parliament's pleasure and because the whole existence of the monarchy is essentially just a condescension of Parliament to even allow that. They can define laws of succession as well. And, and Blackstone does acknowledge this. You know, go, you go back to 1750, Blackstone in his section on this d does acknowledge that Parliament can modify the laws of succession. But, you know, I just want to, for our listeners, I want to remind you guys that this is the only country with rights. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, all that being said, so the 2013 act was called the succession to the crown act and it you know it's related to a, an agreement among all the commonwealth countries that was called the perth agreement had to do with you know in their in their eyes updating or modernizing the the rules of succession so among other yeah. things for any claimant to the throne you know anyone in the line of succession who was born after 2011 gender will no longer play a role at all so basically you know the it's unlikely that that rule will affect the next successor to the to the throne because there are, you know, plenty of a, adult offspring of the royal family who are... William's probably you know, going to be next, and I think Harry's after that, so... Well, no, because William has a son. No, I'm, uh, I'm saying if William... Wait, is is British throne... I'm forgetting. Is, is British succession, is it per stirpes or per capita? If, if William dies, does it go to Harry or does it go to William's kids? I think it goes to William's kids, but I could be I think you're right. That. I think yeah. you're right. That's per stirpe. There's right of representation at each level. That You're right. Actually, I know you're right. I remember okay. now. 
All right. So anyway, so it, it it's likely that the next we just hit, did that on yeah. our podcast or on our on our asking <laughs> attorney. I addressed that exact issue. I just, okay. Look, this doesn't come up a lot in American <laughs> law, folks. Yeah. No. Understandably. <laughs> So anyway, that's unlikely to affect the next succession, but the one after that will likely be essentially gender blind. So, you know, you could call it absolute primogeniture. So, you know, just oldest child. It's kind of an odd choice. Historically or philosophically? Well, it, just, it kind of virtually guarantees uh, new dynasties. Yeah, no, that's that's fair, but... Which is, gen you generally don't want that. You know, for the sake of stability of a kingdom, you want to make sure it's you have long dynasties. I've get the sense that very few people think in dynastic terms anymore, but well, game of Thrones is changing that David. That, <laughs> so you, are you <laughs> suggesting that we may see a revival in sort of royalist politics in Europe because of game of Thrones? Yeah, I hope not. I hope not. <laughs> that would be interesting. I will give you that. Um, other things that the, that the act did. I th they're probably just trying to be you know nice to the, the ladies too, you know, not, not sexist. I, I assume that, yeah, that's the, the thinking is just that they don't want to have any element of, of um, sex discrimination. You uh, know, I read enough history. My, my thought is, oh, gee, that, that substantially limits the women who can be married to other sovereigns to, in, to gain political power. <laughs> uh, it increases your chances of being taken over by a foreign nation through, through marriage. It, yeah, you know, I'm... <laughs> like, I think most of that stuff doesn't really matter anymore. So. Not not much, um, <laughs> as you you know, as we have commented on before. Parliament really does run almost the entire show. Yeah, parliamentary tyranny over there. <laughs> but the advantage to that, I, I guess, is that you can make your line of British succession less sexist. Yeah. An another thing so, that the act did, you know, there's trade-offs, pros and cons to legislative tyranny. <laughs> uh, we'll let the audience weigh them. That's a political question. Yeah. That, that's the sort of politics we don't get into. Another thing it did, though, is remove the prohibition on people married to Catholics from inheriting. It still leaves in place the requirement right. that the actual monarch be Protestant. But they are now going to be permitted to be married to Catholics. Wait, they don't need they don't need pre-approval from the monarch to get married now. Well. That's the other thing. Only the six, you know, the, the the six closest to the line of succession will still require the permission of the monarch to marry. Because I, I don't know how you can't get rid of the requirement that they are disallowed from marrying Roman Catholics if the monarch still has to pre-approve the marriage because the monarch is the head of the Church of England, and as head of Church of England is duty bound not to approve marriages to Roman Catholics. That is probably a more specific question of ecclesiastical politics and ecclesiastical law. And That's I don't true. actually know. So this know. is just the civil law. Fair yeah. point. Fair point. Yeah. But at any rate, only these six. By the way, I'm not saying I approve of any of this. Yeah. I think that it's fine if Protestants want to marry Catholics, vice versa. I'm just speaking historically from people are going to people are going to hear what I say and they're going to say he doesn't think Roman Catholics should marry Protestants. And that's not true. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it is historically speaking, this would have been a very big issue but it's just it's uh, an interesting facet of the law that it actually this is the last thing i wanted to say about that 2013 act it actually does modify the text of the english bill of rights so it, so they so there you go folks there's your legislative tyranny they actually modified yeah. their constitution it, it strikes the references to you know or is married to a papist or you know etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, there's language does it, like does that it take all the like all the rights that only pertain to protestants does it modify those i don't believe so no but so then it's still only Protestants have a right to keep and bear arms. 
I'm guessing they probably modified that one previously as one of the, you know. <laughs> so nobody has a right to keep and bear arms. Yeah. Numerous rounds yeah, let's of, make it fair. of let's Catholic let's emancipation. Make it and then, yeah, the fact that they, they severely curtailed that right anyway. Yeah, that's equal um, protection of the law. Yes, uh-huh. yes, nobody can have guns. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, all that to say, there's actually, and it's as, you know, speaking of, as an American, as a, a citizen of a republic, it, 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 there's a very weird sort of sense of time that you get when you start talking about, oh, yeah, you know, 10 years ago, the English modified the royal succession. It feels very anachronistic, even though it actually is yeah. relevant to their current system, albeit in a, in a sort of much watered down version of, of how it would have been previously. But So what do you, I guess here's the question of the day is, are these new lax standards <laughs> Are they inviting a new round of wars of religion? I, you know, I don't think so. Pretty sure we're not going to see. Okay, so you're you're going to take a firm stance on that one. Then. I don't think we're likely to see a new Thirty Years' War. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, what about another uh, English Civil War? You know, that's probably slightly more likely, but I doubt it's going to be over the issue of the the king wants to marry a Catholic. <laughs> of course. At Lex Rex Institute, our preferred method of preventing wars of religion is not to just wait until your society stops caring about religious issues. Uh-huh. Our preferred method is to allow for and protect the equal protection yeah, of religion you know, gu- guarantee. and prevent religious tests for office. So yeah. something like <laughs> making a, a member of our government head of the Church of Tennessee would be something that we don't like. You know, there's a certain sort of conceptual neatness to that as opposed to... Um, yeah just sort of waiting around until no one gets that upset about something anymore but anyway we heard you say something derogatory about (laughs) the British government I didn't even even get you for a second David well for one thing you're on a video feed I can see you knocking on your desk I know it's not someone um, knocking on my door next Um, time I'll have to be more careful about that yeah anyway (laughs) You know, they've got those CCTV cameras everywhere. It's, they do have a lot of CCTV cameras. Yeah, spies are everywhere. You don't, you don't know who's, who's listening. You know, like they the do have a lot of CCTVs and... around. I will say that's one thing that they really need to work hard in their police procedurals to get around just, oh, we have footage of the guy because we have cameras everywhere. Um, I don't know if you, if you watch a lot of British crime shows, but I, there are a couple I that I've I have watched. I don't watched a single one. I know that's not true. I've watched, like, uh, Foil's War, but that's... Before the CCTVs, so yeah, there, there's a one that I've seen a decent amount of called Luther. Mm, yes, and uh, not yeah. seen it, but I know of it. Yeah, they they usually need to come up with a reason why the 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 cameras that they've got everywhere don't just solve the problem for them. So yeah. Anyway, That's another. So again, we're not weighing the political pros and cons of having rights, but I would say another potential downside of not having rights is that it makes it difficult to write police procedurals. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Anyway, that's probably enough on merry old England. And we're going to transition now into American law where we feel much more at home. Yeah. <laughs> Do you feel far from home, David? Uh, well, I, I mean, I quite literally am, although not that much further from my hometown than I was when I lived in California. So I guess that there's that. But, but anyway. I'm sure it feels further. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, all that being said, we're going to talk now about another case that's on the Supreme Court docket for this upcoming term, Moore v. Harper. So the court's granted cert in this case 
which means that they're going to hear it in the upcoming term. I don't think the merits briefs have been written yet, so... As far as I know, no. All we have is the petition for cert, but cert has been granted. Yeah, so David, what's going on in this case? So to sum up, not get too deep into the nitty-gritty, basically the North Carolina state legislature was drawing up a new electoral map after North Carolina had a seat added to its its representation in the House of Reps. And the map was challenged by basically a, a group of North Carolina Democrats who thought that it was gerrymandered and didn't comply with various requirements for yeah. electoral maps. Now, G- Generally, that's a very common occurrence. When states south of the Mason-Dixon draw new districts, Yeah, very, very common for there to be challenges, whether it's because those districts are actually racist or whether it's because people perceive them as racist and just like to challenge districts there. I'm not going to weigh in too much on that, but yeah, that's and, a common you know, occurrence. I personally, despite the fact that I was in North Carolina for a few months recently, don't have enough knowledge of its demographics and geography to, to comment on the merits of the map or the new map. But anyway, so the, the map was challenged. And well, I, I can say most electoral maps are gerrymandered. Like so if you were oh, weighing yeah. the merits, just like generally speaking of most electoral maps, you would you would say, well, this obviously has some kind of partisan agenda. The problem is when that partisan agenda happens to cleave along racial lines, which yeah. is not uncommon because right. for whatever reason, different racial groups in the United States tend to by and large vote similarly to their group. So political gerrymandering often looks like racial gerrymandering, hence the challenges. Yeah. Anyway, the challenge ended up all the way at the highest state court in North Carolina, where they ordered the map to be redrawn, basically on the basis that it didn't comply with requirements under the uh, Voting Act of... Yeah, the it, Voting Rights Act of Voting 1965 Act. Yeah. is what this stuff's heard under. Yeah, and court ordered it to be redrawn. The state legislature went away, drew a new one, submitted it. That one was also rejected, at which point the court appointed a... And we'll, we'll get into this in a minute, but a special master team to just draw up a new one. Yeah. So the, the state legislature said, you know, we don't think that the court can just sort of on its own authority create a map. They challenged that ruling, appealed that to the Supreme Court. And, you know, saying a- we've got the authority to do that. There's nothing in the Constitution saying that the Supreme Court of North Carolina can district, can, can draw lines for districting purposes that power is reserved to the state legislature, right? Right, exactly. So I guess the first question, and I'm going to appeal to you here because I really don't know, is what do we make of, you know, some, in the media they often call this the independent state legislature theory. Yeah, and it, they call it a theory, which I think is just such a way of poisoning the well on this. Let me Here, tell me what you think, David. Let me read you the relevant section of the Constitution here. Yeah. This is Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1. What it says is the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. Yeah. But the Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations, except as to the places of choosing senators. Yeah. What do you think? Well, so... Act or theory? <laughs> yeah, my you know my initial response there is that it sure sounds like it's going out of its way because there are many times in the Constitution where it will just say the states have a power or the states have a right, 
and it doesn't specify. And usually that that also means the state legislatures because yeah. that's you know coming from a British common law tradition, they were aware that legislative supremacy was a feature of the English Constitution. If they don't specify that they mean somebody besides the legislature, usually it means the legislature. But you're right, there would be some ambiguity yeah. if they had just said that. Right, but they, they do, you know, the language there does seem to be going out of its way to specify this is a legislative power at the state level. So at least at first blush, I certainly have a lot of sympathy for this argument. Yeah, does it say anything about the Supreme Court of that state? No, although to be fair, not every state organizes their judiciary the same way, so it would be a little odd if it did. Does it say anything about the <laughs> judiciary of that state? No, it does not. Does it say anything about a weird quasi-executive appointed by the judiciary of that state? That, it certainly does not say. No, I don't see anything about that. What I see, and this is pretty telling, because they say it shall be prescribed by the, the legislature of each state, they've actually got an exception for that. Yeah. They have a built-in safeguard, a built-in protection for when the legislature does it wrong, yeah. right? Because they knew this was an issue. They knew it was a possibility. So what do they say? But the Congress may at any time, by law, make or alter such regulations. Yeah. So you've got both the, the preferred way of doing it and you have the safeguard for when that doesn't work. Those are both built in here. I'm just not sure where there's room for question in that. Yeah, you know... As far as I've been able to gather, and this is more on the sort of reportage on this issue than anything I've read. Is that a word? Reportage? Yeah. Oh, okay. Go on. I mean, I think some people pronounce it all French, like reportage, but I'm reportage. not going to do that. Yeah. yeah. I'm not going to do Sorry that. Sorry I corrected you on whom earlier. I'm a little bit of a grammar Nazi, <laughs> for those of you who don't know. <laughs> anyway. Grammar national socialist. No, I'm not. I'm not any kind of socialist. That's not true. I haven't read any material from lawyers arguing against this position. What I have read is just sort of, you know, commentary from political writers or, or journalists what have you. So, you know, who knows if this act accurately reflects the legal arguments that have been made prior at, you know, at lower levels. But the basic argument seems to be, well, yeah, the legislature can do it, but legislatures are traditionally subject to checks and balances under state constitutions. So why wouldn't we, we just have assume... a check? We says what check and balance <laughs> we have. It says it right here, David. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> I think this may be it's Congress. Yeah. This, this may be another instance where as we're so fond of saying, people just sort of have a fundamental, we would say, mistaken approach to reading the Constitution. Wherein, yeah, like they can't know, read. Well, <laughs> wherein they think that the Constitution is more about setting limits than granting express authority. And yeah. so, so yeah, so it's, you know, there's the legislature can do it. Maybe Congress can also do it. But the actual constraints on this system are going to be extrinsic to the Constitution is what you're saying. Yeah, basically. Whereas I think we would look at it and say, no, you know, the only way that we know how to do elections is what the Constitution says. And it says exactly this, nothing else than this. Yeah. And, and actually what, you know, I'm making kind of light of it, but actually what we're seeing here play out is what I think is an inherent conflict between the Voter Rights Act and the Constitution of the United States, which has been playing out really since the Voter Rights Act was passed. But I, I think that it's most poignant here, really. So let, let's sort of take a brief overview of the way that election law works. If you believe that there is discriminatory districting, if you believe that that districting, let, let's just use race because I think race is the easiest to show. Yeah. Uh, the court the court has said that political gerrymandering is acceptable. You know, that gets rational basis review. 
Uh, so if you can show that, you know, no, 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 we weren't discriminating against this particular race. We just didn't want Democrats to win. Yeah. That would be okay. You can do that. Might shock people. But again, <laughs> that's consistent with the Constitution. State legislatures are supposed to be drawing these districts. But regardless, there are two ways you can approach a discrimination case. Well, really, there's more than one kind of voter rights act or voter rights case as well. You can have vote dilution so that votes of a particular group are being diluted. Maybe they were put into a group they shouldn't have been put into because of how you drew the districts. I'm sure you guys have probably seen that chart before where you have eight districts, a bunch of different groups of people. You might have 40% group A and 60% group B. Well, you can draw the lines in such a way where all eight of those districts are going to go to Group B was the one I said with 60, right? I think so, yeah. But yeah, you, yeah, group you, B. you get the point. Yeah, you guys yeah. have probably seen that before. It's possible to do. Uh, that would be vote dilution. That's not what's going on here. Here they're actually alleging discrimination. So I'm just going to talk about that. But when you bring a discrimination election law claim, two different ways you can do it. You can do it under the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, which says that equal protection of the laws can't be denied to people on the basis of different protected classes, one of which is race. And then you can do it under the Voter Rights Act. Now, the Voter Rights Act is going to be a lot more permissive in terms of, that's a bad way of phrasing it. It's a lot more restrictive in terms of what a state can do and a lot more permissive in terms of what lawsuits are going to be successful. Yeah. Saying that there was discrimination under the Voter Rights Act. So that's traditionally been the way, you know, usually they'll bring both claims, but usually they'll be a lot more likely to succeed on the Voter Rights Act claims. So... That's the way these claims work. Originally, under the Voter Rights Act, it was a lot broader than that. Specifically, that Section 5 of the Voter Rights Act required pre-clearance by the United States Attorney General for certain discriminations that were deemed to have a past history of racial discrimination. So that was basically most of the South. All, all the states that seceded back in the 1860s were basically subject to pre-clearance by the Attorney General. What that meant is that they could not make any change to their own election laws unless the attorney general looked at those laws first and said that they were okay. Yeah. David, does that sound consistent with the clause of the Constitution I read earlier? No. Um, and, you know, arguably, you know, I'm not sure how this would devolve on states, but it certainly feels of a kind with violations of the 14th Amendment. Yeah. You know. Well, and it's also, you know, even if you were to argue it was consistent with uh, Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1, the way that it would be consistent is that Congress has passed a law that created an agent of the executive that's right. supposed to pre-clear uh, changes to voting laws in those states. So arguably, it's a violation of separation of powers, too. Yeah. Because as we talked about before, non-delegation doctrine says that Congress can't just assign away their powers to somebody else, which is what they would be doing there. That is understandably found unconstitutional. But... I say that to sort of illustrate the Voter Rights Act really had a scheme for controlling voting in this country that, I, you know, I, I try not to be hyperbolic in what I say, but it's frankly is directly at odds with the one that's laid out in the Constitution. Yeah. So that's the conflict you're seeing here. These claims are brought under the Voter Rights Act. Voter Rights Act obviously gives judges the ability to decide whether or not districting is correct, which is what the judge had decided in North Carolina. What remedy can a judge possibly impose if the state legislature keeps doing it wrong? Pretty much all they can do is appoint their own agent to draw district lines himself. Yeah. Well, and that brings us to the other thing that I thought 
would be you know of particular interest because it's in the news for other reasons as well recently in terms of the whole Mar-a-Lago investigation, but this concept of a special master, which is, you know, sort of an odd phrase and one that, you know, I personally had not heard very often, at least before the last few weeks. And so I wanted to get into that. So what exactly is a special master and under what circumstances are they appointed? That's a great question, David. What's your research on this, say? <laughs> Very little beyond it's something that judges sometimes do to ensure that their orders are executed, basically. Which That's you know, basically right. Makes it yeah. sound as though that's, it's a... Uh... I don't know. There is a real strict idea uh-huh. of what is a special master under our law. It's, it's basic. Sometimes the court will issue injunctions, you know, orders that, that require somebody to do something that need somebody to administer those orders because they're not just self-executing. And judges obviously can't do that themselves. They're judges. They don't go out and supervise things. They're not trustees. So special master is basically a trustee of the court that executes or or ensures that the court's orders are executed properly. Yeah. That's that's basically what it is. Yeah. I mean, honestly, you know, the biggest thing to me is that the, the phrase just strikes me as so odd when I struggle to see how this is much different than like someone being you know, the executor of an estate or, you know, basically any other sort of position where you might just sort of be assigned responsibility for something. Um, Yeah, I don't know the history on that. I don't know why they don't just call him a trustee. Yeah. Anyway, (laughs) so... Because they they are a trustee. That's what what their job is, essentially. And in this case, you know, I think it's noteworthy, you know, specifically in the context of Moore v. Harper, that... For all that the sort of opposition here seems to want to point to, oh, you know, we're supposed to work within a, a system with checks and balances and, the, you know, the way that works is with the judiciary and the executive and the legislative. We talked already about why the Constitution provides for a specific other check already, but it's noteworthy here that the executive part is being done by the judiciary anyway. Yeah. You know, there's yes. an ad hoc executive. It'd be, I think, a stronger case on that argument, although not a strong case. Executor might be even a better comparison than trustee, yeah. frankly. They can't call him an executor because then it's clear that he shouldn't be from the judiciary. <laughs> but I, I do think that the the other argument would at least sort of seem to cohere better if they had entrusted it to like the governor to oversee the redrawing as opposed to, yeah, that, you know. What I, I think that would still probably be at odds with the Constitution. I think so too. On this, but yeah. it would be, that would be more of a check and a balance, certainly. Yeah. It's, you know, David, look at this book that's in front of me. This is one of my four-volume sets on the Constitution of the United States. It's called the Founders' Constitution. Basically, what it does is it organizes the Constitution by clause and then finds all the different things founders had to say about that clause and all their different writings and speeches, so on and so forth, collects them all together. Pretty big pages, right, David? Yep. Small text, big pages. Yep. Double column. You know how many pages there are on this clause? Oh, I have no idea. Um, 33 pages okay. just on this class. That's a lot. <laughs> 33 straight pages. And consistently across the board, every single person that talks about this is well aware of the fact that drawing district lines can potentially be biased. Yeah. That is the point up for debate here. That's the reason they build in the check of having Congress be able to override that law when they want to. Yeah. Now, where people disagree, now you have people who are on the more anti-federalist side of things. They're, they're afraid of the idea that it's the federal government that's the main check on this. 
Now you have sure. people who are on the maybe the other side of things that dislike that is given to the state legislature exclusively, the, the original power to do this. Now, that's sort of the debate that goes on on this. Nobody in this debate thinks for a second that districting isn't going to be a contentious issue and that there isn't potential for bias on it. This is not something the founders were unaware of. Yeah. That's the reason why, and ultimately they do settle on that check of having Congress be the one to, to check that, which I think makes sense, especially with congressional districts, because even though those are elected by the people of the state, they are ultimately federal offices. So I think it makes sense there is some federal check on that. That's the system they implemented. Yeah. It has a built-in protection. It's the exact protection the framers intended to put there. It's a result of compromise between competing interests. If we go with a different check on that, we are fundamentally altering the scheme the founders put in place and of which they were fully cognizant and aware. So I, I don't think it's a, an independent state legislature theory. I think it's an independent state legislature fact. Yeah. <laughs> it is, you know, you mentioned th that everyone was aware districting would be a major sort of bone of contention. It's got to be. Yeah. And, the, you know, the, that's true in English history. The, you know, the phenomenon that you may remember hearing about in high school called rotten boroughs, which were, you know, basically these parliamentary districts that are pocket borough. Yeah. That were either, you know, they were once populous and are now basically abandoned, but they still get representation in parliament or a pocket borough. Yeah. Being, you know, basically just a, a handpicked sort of constituency that you can control the outcomes of, but... And our system controls for that because yeah. it requires proportionality. Yeah. Their system does not require proportion. We, we have one man, one vote, or, or one person, one vote in this country. Yeah. So you can't have, you know, one person per district. They got to have roughly the same number. Yeah. We do protect against that. Yeah. But it's, as I mentioned, I've been doing a lot of walking lately because I don't have a car here. And I've been listening to an audiobook about the sort of last decades or so of the Roman Republic called The Storm Before the, the Storm. the name of the book? I remembered this time. It's oh, called I'm the, sorry. I interrupted the name yeah, of the book. It's called It's called <laughs> The Storm Before the Storm. And, it, you know, it's not very scholarly. It's, you know, it's very narrative. It's easy listening, basically. But something that I found striking was that that same basic issue was really the definitive issue of late Republican politics for the Romans, how yeah. to deal with integrating the other Italian people into the Roman Republic. You know, they they called them allies for a very long time because they hadn't been these sort of original citizens of Rome. But, you know, as time went on and their society got more and more integrated with Rome, people said, why don't we just make them citizens? But a huge fight ensued over how you would group them for voting because the Romans voted in blocks that they called tribes. So mm -hmm. some people were like, well, let's just put them all into a few tribes and they'll vote last so that the issue is probably already resolved before they come up. And Which is its own whole issue. I mean, the way that Roman voting worked is very counterintuitive. Yeah. If you don't already understand it. But yeah, that's actually, that's actually that'd be a good topic to talk about in the future. Yeah. But, and, you know, one of it, so that was one side of it. And then other people were like, no, we need to disperse them throughout so that they get proportionate representation. So anyway, all this to say, how you draw the rules and the, like the, you know, the, the areas for voting is an extremely old issue. And it has always been yeah. a hard one to resolve. And, and I'm sure that our listeners, you know, we've probably got listeners who are listening in and will think, what we're doing now is a pretty bad system. What do you mean state legislatures can just draw these lines? And they can do it on partisan grounds. You know, they can make sure that their party is more likely to win. That seems ridiculous. Yeah. Show me a better way. 
yeah, there's it's there such a, a hard, way. such a hard problem there, there, to deal with. There's no way to do this objectively. Yeah. And I know that our Summer of the Revolution series is over, <laughs> but there are people who have tried to do it objectively. Yep. The way they did that in France was they just drew squares. Yep. And their districts were little squares, and it didn't matter where the lines of those squares fell. If you were in one square, you were in one district. If you were outside that square, you were in a different one. Yep. That's a horrible system. Uh-huh. It's a really horrible system. That it's, it's not proportional. It doesn't. It has no representation of regional interests whatsoever. So right. if people from place A differ from place B and you cut it in half, yep. there's, it doesn't account for that at all. There needs to be a human element in districting. Yeah. By making that a direct political issue, a partisan issue, which is what you do when you assign it to the legislative branch, because remember, that's the political branch of government. Yeah. So by intentionally making that a political issue, I think that our founders were very, very wise. Yeah, because at because least... they say this is the sort of thing where there should be give and take. Yeah, people should fight over this. You should come to a compromise exactly. in what your districting is. You make so... it an open issue that people can struggle over. You know, it, it puts it yeah. out there instead of making it all backroom, clandestine stuff. And I think that is the exactly. best solution that we've got to what is a very difficult yeah. problem. Yeah, I mean, maybe someday somebody brilliant will come up with something better. Yeah. But there is currently nothing better that has ever been tried. Yeah, It's not an ideal system. Our Constitution does not create an ideal system of government. An ideal system of government doesn't exist this side of the millennium. I'm not sure people will get that reference. but uh... Oh, it's, it's from Blackstone. But... Oh, interesting. Okay. Anyway, anyway it's pre-perfection. Yeah. There is no ideal system of government. You're not going to implement a perfect set of rules anywhere ever. What you can get is a more perfect union, yeah. which is what our Constitution does. And if somebody out there someday comes up with a better way of districting, by all means, that's something that maybe we'd want to implement. But there are not currently any. I can say that with a great deal of confidence. Ours is the very best bad system of districting. Yeah. Anyway, we are a little pressed for time, so I think we should probably call Ooh. it there <laughs> and transition into our final segment, if you've got that music queued up. Gather round, boys and girls, young and old, everybody interested in the eccentricities and crazy world of law in the United States and in Britain now. <laughs> it's Captain Kangaroo Court. All right, so, David, what kind of stuff do we have today? Well, we're going to start. I think you'll find this uh, pretty good because I, I think the vocabulary in question will appeal to you. But let's just uh, read the headline. Lawyer who exclaimed Gadzooks at trial delayed but didn't disrupt justice, ethics hearing board says. What? They brought an ethical complaint against him for saying Gadzooks? Yes. Um, so basically, what was the context? Basically, what happened was this guy. What state is this? Illinois. Illinois. Yeah. Okay. So this guy, you know, was in a courtroom, you know, apparently having some friction with the judge. He, you know, kept saying, I'd like to make a record. I'd like to make a record. And the judge was getting impatient and said, you know, be quiet. And eventually said, like, you know, sit down. And he said, all right, I'm sitting. I'd still like to make a record. And, you know, they have this whole back and forth. And eventually, apparently, he sort of mumbles to himself, Gadzooks. And the judge asks him, what did you say? And he says, oh, Gadzooks. And she told him she was holding him in contempt. And it kept escalating that from there. 
<laughs> oh, that's almost a scene from My Cousin Vinny. Mr. Gambini, are you mocking me with that outfit? Mocking you? No, I'm not mocking you, Judge. Then explain that outfit. I bought a suit. You've seen it. Now it's covered in mud. This town doesn't have a one-hour cleanest, so I had to buy a new suit. Except that the only store you could buy a new suit in has got the flu. You get that? The whole store got the flu. So I had to get this in a second-hand store. So it's either wear the leather jacket, which I know you hate, or this. So I wore this ridiculous thing for you. You on drugs? Drugs? No, I don't take drugs. I don't like your attitude. What else is no? I'm holding you in contempt of court. Oh, there's a surprise. What'd you say? What? What'd you just say? What'd I say? What? Yeah, it's it's very similar. That's almost a scene, but I, that's that's yeah, that's really similar to that scene. Yeah. Wow. Um, huh. So apparently, at this point, the judge called for a recess, and you know when they came back, it just keeps getting keeps getting more and more tense and and hostile between this attorney and the judge. But this is this is the part that I found especially. Appealing. There's probably no audio of this, huh? It's I don't think so. Transcript. Um, but probably not even a transcript because he wanted to make a record and they weren't doing it. Yeah. During the ethics hearing, you, you can't. I, generally, you need to have a court reporter present to do that. I don't know if there was one or not. But. Yeah. I only know what ABA Journal has told me, but this is this is my favorite part. During the ethics hearing, Demacopoulos, who that's the judge, testified she didn't know what Gadzooks meant, but she considered it offensive. <laughs> <laughs> and it appeared to be a way to critique or undermine her ruling. Democopolis. That's an interesting name for a judge, isn't it? That what does that mean? That means like the people's city or something like that? Uh some Or the many's city, yeah. You know, some something along the you know, polis for sure is city. My Greek is too rusty yeah. to tell you beyond that. But um anyway, I do love that idea though. She hears a weird word and she assumes it's offensive. That's yeah, that sounds like a lot of judges I know. <laughs> All right. Anyway, um, do you have one or should I go on to my other one? Oh, you know, I have a couple. I didn't prepare them, though. So use your other one. Okay. All right. Bring them next week. Yeah. And this other one, another another judge involved, but under very different circumstances. Judge is suspended after he's accused of pointing AR-15 style rifle at stepson. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, what's the context of this one, David? Honestly, the context doesn't make this much better. It's hard to see how it would. <laughs> um, basically, so set, setting aside sort of all the background stuff about the procedural, this is what the, the judge had to say about it. And so it's Judge Thompson says... Mm-hmm. The confrontation began after a car drove toward him at high rate of speed while he was walking his dog. Thompson feared for his safety because of, and this is part of the background, as he said he was under a lot of stress because he'd received some threats, um, I assume, you know, in relation to something that was going on at the court. 
So Thompson feared for his safety because of thre the threats he had received, and he reacted angrily when he saw his stepson was a passenger in the car. The stepson appeared uh -huh. to be intoxicated, was confrontational, and insisted on entering Thompson's home, he claimed. And <laughs> so after that... I feel like that makes it a little bit better. It, it, it helps a bit, but it's still um, probably not extremely judge-like behavior. <laughs> No, it's basically it's somewhat injudicious. Yeah, that's, that's true. You know, I, I have a great one that I would love to tell. Unfortunately, it's confidential, but I, I'm um, let, let's just say I, David knows what it is. But yeah. I, I'm working on a, a new case that's fairly high profile. You probably hear about it in the coming weeks. And I'm one of the lawyers who's also working on that. So somebody who's co-counsel with me is a very well-known lawyer. And Gosh, I probably shouldn't say much more than that, but it was <laughs> probably not. I had a hilarious phone call yesterday. Yeah, well, sadly, probably can't really count that as kangaroo. <laughs> <laughs> it's I, it's really funny though, like guys, it's really funny. You would love it if I told you, but it's confidential and I can't. Yeah, well, um, that's a big tease, I guess. <laughs> but <laughs> it was funny, right, David? It was a good story. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was a good story. Maybe one yeah. day. So just. There, if you guys didn't yeah. like our other things, just know we've got good ones. We just can't, we just tell, can't you. tell them yeah. to you. Uh, yeah. We totally have a girlfriend. She just goes to a different school. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just so. Anyway, but last thing I want to say about this thing, though, with the gun is just that the the thing that really makes it for me is that it's a stepson because I feel like that just speaks so much to you know the, the weirdness and awkwardness of the situation like you know it always yeah. seems to be specifically step parents who get into these bizarre situations and anyway it's really not that funny david that's more sad okay right? well if you want me to cut that i, I will cut to each that. his own but to me it was funny no don't cut it <laughs> anyway that that's all we have for today folks hopefully you guys enjoyed the <laughs> zany wacky world of american law stories you can be told and the stories that you can't in Captain <laughs> Kangaroo Court. <laughs> so we'll see you folks again next week. All right. Well, as always, thank you for listening and we hope that you'll listen Oh, by again. the way, David, did you listen to the episode with Eric Hampton in it? I did uh, because I edited it, which you know, but... Um... <laughs> for the audience's sake. Yeah, yeah I, 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 I did listen to that, yes. <laughs> it did a good job, right? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if anyone has actually reached out to you to... to tell you if, that they want him to replace me but um you know if you no, do, no if you do feel that, that way you can you can let us know i'll only be mildly devastated by that that's that's so very sad david we're not going <laughs> to replace you anytime soon we love you david also you have much more availability than eric so. that's that's true i think that's the <laughs> big advantage because david's you know he's, he's a writer so he's on the team doing this kind of stuff already plus there's well the time difference doesn't really help but. no the time difference doesn't help but you know academic schedules tend to be at least flexible if not open yeah so he's still gonna be working with us if you worried that he wouldn't be now that he's in school david's a hard worker he'll still be working with us so <laughs> yeah that's all for today's episode if you didn't check out the one with eric last week go ahead and check that out also if you want to learn more about succession check out last week's ask an attorney video entitled i don't think we have a title for that <laughs> at the time of recording but you should see it it's the most recent episode of the time this launches which will be september 19th 2022. That's all. Uh, thanks for listening, folks. All right. Goodbye.